Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Goodwin, founder of Career Club, and welcome to today's LinkedIn Live. Um, if you're not familiar with Career Club, please check us out at career.club, where we're using proven sales methods and tools to help our clients find careers that matter to them. Uh, this is a live event, so you are welcome to uh, chat with us. Love to hear where you're calling in from. And if you've got any questions or comments as we go, uh, we try and allow some uh, flexibility to incorporate those in conversation. If for some reason you need to hop off early, no problem. You can always watch this on replay on LinkedIn. We're also making these available now as podcasts uh, for the audio portion. And you can download those on all the top uh, podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. Lastly, I want to make sure that, I, as always, I thank my colleague, Heather Zinzer, who is the brains behind this operation. So, Heather, as, as always, thanks for uh, getting us here and up live. So today, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Mark Hirschberg. Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And Mark's got a really fascinating background and so fascinating. In fact, I'm going to read it to you um, and then we'll, we'll get Mark on the call here. But from tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s and in academia. Uh, he helped to start the undergraduate practice opportunities program dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches this course annually. Now, unfortunately, Mark's education is a little thin. Um, he uh, has uh, a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering, and his master's in engineering in electrical engineering and computer science with a focus on cryptography. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, currently serving on the board of Plant a Million Corals. So with that, I'd love to welcome our guest, Mark Hirschberg. Mark, welcome. Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it is great to have you. And you know, we're, we're really excited to talk about your book. Um, but before we get into that, uh, as is our custom, we call it Rocks Fab Five, just a little bit of an icebreaker to help uh, our audience get to just know you a little bit better. So if we could just start, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in New York City, but grew up primarily in the suburbs of New York and suburbs of Chicago. So I've got a little bit of New Yorker in me and a little bit of Midwest. Awesome. And where do we find you today? Today, I'm coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, where I've been living throughout the pandemic and for well over a decade before. Awesome. Cool. I love New York. Um, so I kind of went a little bit through your, your academic background, but just, you know, uh, MIT for three degrees. Did I get that right? That's right. I'm, that, a, I'm a lifer. That is amazing. And then just a little bit about your family. I'm very fortunate to have two wonderful parents, my mother and father, who also live here in New York. So I get to awesome. see them often. My dad's a retired doctor, my mom a retired teacher. And then I've got a brother who now lives in Boston, and he has two kids. We just celebrated their 10th birthday this past awesome. weekend. So it was great growing up with such a supportive family that really emphasized education, which has helped awesome. propel me in my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's fantastic. And um, just a little bit, I mean, I kind of touched on a couple of things, but just a little bit about your career arc. 
I had this really interesting dual career where I started out as a software engineer when I came out of MIT in the 90s. And early on, I started doing startups. I realized I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. But to get that job, I realized it wasn't just about being the best engineer. Yes, I had to be good at that, be better than average. But there were all these other skills I needed. Leadership, negotiating, team building, communication. No one ever taught that to me. So I set out to learn those skills. And as I was learning them, I realized they're not just for executives. They are for everyone. And I began to teach the other people on my team, knowing this would benefit them and the company. And then as just one of those quirky things that happen in life, I heard MIT had done surveys. They had heard from companies. These are the skills they want to see, not just from MIT engineers, not just from college grads, recent ones, but everyone. So that's why we created the Career Success Accelerator at MIT. And when I heard about it, I reached out. I offered to help give them some of my content. And they asked me to stay and teach. And that led to this parallel path that in addition to being that CTO, that CTPO these days, Chief Technology Product Officer, yeah. I've also have the book and the teaching and everything I do with that. Super cool. Well, it sounds like you got a pretty busy schedule, but there's a human being part of you too, not just sort of the work producing guy. So uh, where would we find you? What, what are you doing when you're not at work? That's a good question. And certainly the last two years, there hasn't been quite as much as I usually do. But typically, I will say I, I work quite a bit because I like what I do. So the book was a side project for me. I have the app that came out of the book and now another app that's coming out of that. So those are just some interesting side projects. But then I used to do a lot of entertaining at home. I hope to get back to that now that we're probably past the pandemic phase and moving to endemic. I work with a bunch of nonprofits. You mentioned one earlier, Plant a Million Corals is one I'm very active with right now. Love the theater, love museums, love getting out there, traveling when I can. So I stay pretty busy with all that and keeping up with all my friends. Now, hang on. So you 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 didn't say one thing that I'd like to hear you talk about, which is dancing. So I was a competitive ballroom dancer throughout my 20s. Now, there's a professional circuit, an amateur circuit, and never the twain shall meet. I was on the amateur circuit, but would go to a competition once a month. Used to travel all over the country for that. Trained. I'd put in about 12 to 15 hours a week training. And I competed at the national level. I went to national championships for six years. So that was a very big part of my life. Now, I'm retired from the ballroom dancing competitions, but I still dance socially. In fact, ballroom dancing was one of the last things I did right before lockdown began two years ago. Oh, that is so cool. I'm very envious of, of your ability to do that. So I think that's fun. But like I said, you know, here's this really bright guy with all these cool degrees from MIT, and we'll find you on a ballroom dancing for in a competition. So people are endlessly fascinating. That's for sure. So we've been, we, you alluded to it. You're very on brand in the background with the book and just for what it's worth, for those of you who are watching us uh, on video, here's Mark's book. So when you see it on Amazon, that's what it looks like. Um, but, and, and you, you started to touch on this just a little bit, but just to start at the start, you know, what compelled you to write the book? How did the book come about? Having taught this for now two decades at MIT, in fact, just over two decades, I know how important these skills are. I know how effective they can be. 
but there's more people I wanted to reach. These are not just for MIT students. Now, interestingly, I first thought, I'm going to write up some notes for the class. Because our class, it's not us just lecturing at the students. It's hands-on interactive activities. So students are doing and learning, but they're usually not taking a lot of notes. I thought, let me just write up some notes. I really thought I'd be writing up maybe 20 pages of notes I could give to our students and share online for others. But 20 pages quickly became 40, became 80. And well, once it passed 100, I said, I don't think these are notes. I think this is a book. <laughs> and so it wasn't planned, but I wound up creating the book. No, that's awesome. And, and having read it, you know, I can genuinely say, and, and there's no commercial relationship here, it, it is a fantastic book. When, as you and I were starting to get to know each other and, you know, started finishing each other's sentences on a lot of these key concepts. So I, I'm just very appreciative to have you on today. And, and what I thought, um, you know, there's there's a number of skills and you, you've already kind of alluded to to several of them and time doesn't permit us to go through all of them. Um, but but three that I'm hoping that we can talk about uh, to some extent today are career planning, networking and communication. So yeah, to your earlier point, these are universal skills, right, that people need to be taught and you know, in my note to you earlier, I'm like, this is like personal finance and lots of things that like are real life skills that people need that who taught you those? Like you, you probably caught them over time. And usually as a result of making a bunch of mistakes that you could have known beforehand, but you know, it turns into scar tissue and, instead of, you know, having learned the right way the first time. So that's unfortunately how I had to learn a bunch of them. No, me too. Exactly. Me too. And and it's one of the things, you know, that, that I love about Career Club is, you know, being able to, again, kind of take the benefit of the things that I've done wrong or seen other people have maybe not optimized and then be able to share with people so they can either plan better or course correct sooner. Um, so, so with, you know, if we're going to talk about planning, networking and, uh, communication, I guess, you know, everything starts with a plan, right? Or hopefully should start with a plan. And, you know, you've got a great quote, you know, at the beginning, it says, even a bad plan is better than no plan at all. And so could you maybe just start building on that idea um, around, you know, why having a plan is so important? Let's imagine what we do at work. When you're sitting in your office and the CEO comes to you and says, we have a critical project. This is going to make or break the company. Mm. It's going to be two years long. And I'm putting you in charge of it. What do you do? Do you say, okay, well, two years, that, that's kind of far out. So tell you what, I'll go work on this and uh, I'll, I'll see you in two years. Fingers crossed, we make the project. We, we get everything completed. Do you think your CEO is going to say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Um, of course not. Your CEO is going to say, no, I want to see a plan. I want to see milestones. I want to have check-ins. I want to know how we're doing, yes. not just cross our fingers and hope we get there. Now, if that is not acceptable for a two-year project for your company, then how come we're willing to do it for a 10, 20-year career for ourselves? Yeah. That's not acceptable. Yeah. Now, just like that two-year project, there's no way you're going to say, here's what we're doing on day 586. You can't get it to that level of detail. You also know whatever plan you come up with day one, not going to work exactly as you planned. You're going to have to go change it. 
mm-hmm. this is what trips people up because they say, how do I know what I'm doing in six years? Eh, you don't know exactly what you're doing, but that's okay. You're going to revise it. So yep. a lot of the concepts that we do for our project plans can apply here. And in the book, I break down how to think about where the questions to ask, how to lay out the plan, how to refine and revise it. But just like for any project we do at work, we need to have a plan for our careers. Yeah. Okay. So super quick. And um, looks like maybe some people are having a little bit of a technical issue uh, with LinkedIn. Thankfully, this is simulcast on YouTube and there's a career club YouTube channel. And some people have been kind enough to put the link uh, in the chat. So if anybody's having trouble with the link and thank you again, Heather, for jumping in and doing this. This is the beauty of live television is you get what you get. Um, But again, all this is available on the podcast coming out of this. So, you know, particularly maybe with young people and we're talking about academia and people that are in school and stuff like that. um, What if I don't know exactly what I want to do? Like, it's kind of hard to make a plan when I I don't even really kind of know what the destination might look like. I don't even know what the possibilities for destinations might look like. Good question. Many people face that early in their careers or if they want to do a pivot and they just know I want to get away from something, but I don't know where I want to go. So there are a bunch of things you can do. Now, it begins with asking a bunch of questions. And on the resources page of my website at thecareertoolkitbook.com slash resources, there are a number of questions. These come from chapter one of the book, but they're for free on the website. And these are questions about your career. Now, some of them are kind of obvious things like, well, how many hours do I want to work? Do I want a nine Mm -hmm. to five job? Or am I willing to do a longer job? Or do I want that flexibility? But there are also questions like, where do I want to live? How much flexibility do I want in terms of my options? How much money matters to me? Do I just want millions of dollars? Or do I say, well, this is enough, but I'm willing to trade off more money for perhaps a more flexible lifestyle or more time with my family? And the important thing here as you go through these questions, it's not just about the job, it's about your lifestyle as a whole. Because what we want to do is understand the life we want and find a career and a job that fits into that. Instead of saying, well, this is a job I want and now trying to squeeze a life around that career. So start with these questions, many of which are about your lifestyle and not simply your job. Yeah, so the reason I'm reacting and, and you know, one of the things that that I talk about with the pandemic, you know, is before the pandemic, the frame was work and life needed to kind of fit into that frame somehow. Right. So sorry, you know, I don't make my kids games. Sorry. You know, I'm on a train, you know, four hours a day or you know, whatever that is. But work is the frame and my life is just going to have to fit into there somehow. And Clearly, this is one of the big drivers with the great resignation, reshuffle, whatever great fill in the word you want to call it. But it's like that's completely flipped. And people are like, no, the frame is my life. Where does work fit into this? And like, I don't want to work 60 hours a week for a tyrant. I don't really care how much money you're paying me because that's not the most important thing to me anymore. Right. So really resonating with that. The the other thing that, you know, particularly for young people is sometimes it's just a test for negatives. Like when you don't know what all the possibilities are, at least I know, hey, if you put me in front of a computer for eight hours a day, I'm probably going to hurt myself. Or if this required, you know, a ton of travel 
or whatever, that knowing what you don't like is at least a starting point as you start to explore and find out what you do like and what really resonates with you. Very true. And it's okay to start with the negatives because that at least rules things out. Now, when you go down this path, I also recommend talking to people. Talk to people in different jobs and different roles. Ask them about their jobs. What do you do? What do you like? What don't you like? Now, here's the key thing. And this is how we screw up how we teach children about careers. If you think back to school, we used to bring in parents and other people and say, this is Johnny's mom. She's a doctor. She takes care of six people. And this is Sally's dad. He's an accountant. He adds up numbers and does your taxes. So, okay, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be an accountant? Yes or no? But in fact, we want to look at not a job title, but the components of a job. So as you explore jobs, from hearing about them in podcasts, reading about them, talking to people, Mm -hmm. dig into the details. And don't just say, well, this is a salesperson. Do I want to be a salesperson? Say, all right, this is a salesperson. Let's say they have to sell. Uh, I don't really like the idea of selling. Oh, they're also traveling on the road about two days a week. You know, I kind of like the idea of traveling about 40% of the time. So we recognize the components of a particular job. Say, okay, sales, no, as in the act of selling. Being on the road 40, maybe 50% of the time, yes. So that's one thing that goes into the yes bucket. Let me see other things. Oh, I like engineering. Okay, that's in a yes bucket. And you put these together and you say, well, where can I find a job that lets me do engineering, but also be on the road about half the time? Oh, field engineer. And so by looking at the components and then asking around what type of job lets me do ABC, you can construct a job. You don't have to say, is it this title? So look at the job components. Look at the individual things, what you like and don't like not simply at the macro title level. Can, can you talk for a minute about the role where assessments might play in and how they can help facilitate some of that discovery and clarification? I'm a big fan of assessment tools. Now, they are tools, not tests, because there's no right or wrong. These are things we think of them as those personality assessments. Most famous is probably... MBTI, the Myers-Briggs, but there's a number of others. I link to some free ones off the resources page on my website. I've used Herman, uh, the whole brain model is what we use at MIT. It's not necessarily better or worse than some of the others. DISC is a popular one. Now, when you take these assessments, what they are doing is they are looking at your preferences. And it's important to understand it's preference, not capability. SATs, if you remember back to that, SATs were your competency. How good were you at math versus verbal? Some of us are better and some aren't, and you would like to be better. When you do these other assessments and it says you're more of an innovator, you're more of a coalition builder, Mm -hmm. you're more left brain versus right brain, whatever it is, okay, that's your preference. There's no right or wrong answer. But by understanding your preferences, it's going to help you figure a few things out. First, you might say, oh, I'm more left-brained. Okay, maybe I would enjoy more left-brain activities. Let me make sure I find something with more left-brain activities. Great. It can also be used to identify weaknesses. When I've done these, now it's not surprising that someone like me, I am extremely left-brain quantitative. I'm almost off the charts. And by the way, this is not, you might think, oh, is an MIT guy, of course. We've done these at MIT. We are not 
significantly more, slightly more left brain quantitative than others, but not off the charts in general. We're actually pretty well distributed, and you'll see this among other engineers. Now, I happen to be very extremely off the charts. It also meant I was avoidant of certain other things, particularly those interpersonal things. Ugh, yuck, icky. Yeah. And it was important for me to understand that because I needed those tools. Now, here's the thing about your preferences and avoidance. I am good at math because as a kid, I liked math. I used to do math problems for fun, and mm -hmm. I had that virtuous cycle. I practiced more. I got better. I would do better. I liked that, and I kept focusing on it. There were other things I didn't like. For example, sports. I didn't like that as a kid. I didn't practice. I wasn't good. Well, I didn't enjoy it, so I wanted to spend less time doing it. And so what I recognized when I started doing these assessments, I did not like those emotional things. And no surprise, I wasn't very good at them. Now, mm -hmm. I still, if you give me a problem, I would rather address it quantitatively than emotionally. Mm -hmm. But knowing that weakness, I focused on that area. I focused on my weaker skills to build up. And I'm actually pretty capable at them. So my preference remains low. My competency is high. And even though I'd rather not use those skills if I can use another, it's in my toolbox for when I need them. So these assessments help us understand both what we want to do and to identify weaker areas where we might want to invest a little time just to shore up that weakness. Okay, and I don't want to jump into a math problem, but... Yeah, if we're looking at a rectangle and one side's 10 inches and the other one's four inches, if the 10 inches is my strengths and the four inches is the things I'm less good at, if I remember right, if I make just a marginal improvement on the shorter side, it has a disproportionate impact because it's accelerated by my, my longer suit. Is that correct? That's right. So this is the problem I, I give in the book as an example that old, remember back in junior high, they'd say you have a four by 10 rectangle, extend one of the sides by two to maximize the area. Now we we do so by increasing the short side. We go from a four to six to get 60, but 10 to 12, we only get 48. And conceptually what's happening when you take those extra two and put them on that short side, those extra two get amplified by that long side. And if you think conceptually, how many times have we met someone who might be extremely competent in a particular area. So suppose, we'll, we'll take myself earlier, extremely good at those technical skills. I can come up with good technical problems, mm -hmm. but I wasn't so good at communicating them or at getting buy-in from other people. And my great ideas just languished. By working on the short side, by working on my weaknesses, I could then take those great solutions and get that buy-in, get that coalition building and implement it. So we do need to continue to work on our long sides. Me and technology, if I don't pay attention to it, I become a dinosaur. In all our fields, we have to continue to work on our long sides, but investing in those short sides typically give us a better ROI. It's not about being the world's biggest coalition builder. I am the best at, but it's going from eh, borderline competent, maybe even incompetent, to, okay, I'm decent. I can do it when I need it. So look at those short sides and be sure to invest some time in them. You know, Mark, I just so appreciate kind of that framework because that was a new one for me. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like, well, if you have something that you're not that good at, you know, the right answer is just surround yourself with people who are 
you know, that's their skill. And, and, you know, honestly, in my, you know, uh, working relationship with Heather, you know, I like strategy and sales and Heather's very process oriented and gets stuff done, but I need to be better at some of those things myself. So I can't just completely delegate all that away to the extent I even, to your point, get marginally better at some of those things. It it's amplified across everything that I do. And, and that's it, just, it's a unique perspective that I haven't really heard people talk about before. And, and I'm really glad that you talked about that. Last thing, just if you could touch on it, um, the importance of a mentor in, in helping you kind of architect a career plan. Throughout the book, I really emphasize talking to other people yeah. and getting input from others. You don't have to do this alone. Now, it might be one-off conversations. Oh, I just talked to this person, learned a little about her job, what was interesting, what was not. Mm -hmm. But by having a mentor, you have someone where you have a longer-term connection. You've built a relationship. You can go a little deeper mm -hmm. because it's not a one-off conversation. And so I recommend finding mentors, particularly given some goal. If you say, I want to get better at a particular area or skill set, having someone who is stronger in that area she or he can help guide you down that path. So I recommend having a mentor or two. Now, this isn't necessarily a lifelong commitment. You bring in that person to your life when you need them. Keep that relationship for a while and then gently end. And I go through in the book. You should never just walk away and go, yep, I'm just going to ghost Bob. It's great. Great day advice from him. Now I'm just going to ghost him. No, you, you say, hey, Bob, you know, thanks. This has been helpful. I'm going to focus on a different area now. But yeah. using those mentors can really help promote development of those short sides. So so maybe that's a, a really good opportunity then to pivot into the next topic, which is networking. And I love networking. Connecting people is like my activity. That's a, a yeah, I don't want to get new agey, but like that's an energy giving kind of an activity for me because I know both people are going to benefit and, and I feel good when, when that happens. Um, and again, one of the quotes in your book is the currency of real networking is not greed, but generosity. And, and, you know, I've written some content to the very first thing I ever wrote was called the most powerful question you can ask. And it was in the context of job search and in the context of networking and a potential trick answer to that is, Hey, do you know of a job that, you know, right now? And well, no, that's not the most powerful question that you can ask. For me, the most powerful question you can ask is, is there anything that I can do to be of help to you personally or professionally? And, you know, I know that you, you talk a lot about, you know, uh, networking is predicated on relationships and relationships are predicated on trust. Could you kind of take that thread and start to run with it for a minute? Imagine the following scenario. You go out to a bar and you meet some people and, oh, this is great. You have a couple drinks with them. Seem like nice people. And after maybe two hours of drinks, you say, hey, you know, great meeting you guys. So listen, this weekend, I need to move. So why don't you come over Saturday, help me pack up my apartment, and uh, we got to carry some couches down six flights of stairs. Really appreciate it. Great. You guys are in, right? Of course not. They're going to look at you and say, yeah, no, not <laughs> happening. And we know enough to say, hey, I shouldn't go up to strangers who I just met, who I've only known for an hour or two and say, come do this big favor for me. Mm -hmm. And yet when most people say, oh, it's time to network, I need a job. I have to go network. 
You're like, hey, stranger, I'm Mark. Nice to meet you. Tell me a little about you. So listen, I need a job. It's the same thing. It's meeting someone saying, come pack up my apartment. Yep. And yet we do this and we think this is networking. Now, who is it I can call to pack up my apartment? I can mm-hmm. call my friends from college. I can call people who I've known for years and say, hey, look, I need a favor. And they're going to do it because we have that long established relationship and we've helped each other over the years. When you're looking for a job, the people who are most likely to help you will be the people you've known before. Networking begins long before you need to call upon it. That's when you want to develop your network. Now, that's not to say you can't ask someone you just met to pass along your resume, but consider if I've known you for 10 years and you say, hey, I'm really interested in that job. I'm going to not only take your resume, I'm going to go over to the hiring manager and say, this is this is Sarah. I've known her for years. She is fantastic. I know her resume only shows three years experience and you want seven, but she's worth talking to anyway. And here's why. But if on the other hand, it's Jim, I just met Jim at the bar. It's like, can you pass along my resume? Okay. Hey, met this guy, Jim. Here's his resume. Take a look. Yeah. So having that relationship allows us to do stronger better activities, better relationship-related activities, and generates more value. Yeah. Yeah, and so maybe maybe tying, talking to other people to learn about things that we talked about, like in the career planning section here, you know, identifying mentors, you know, somewhere in all that feels like setting up like informational interviews. Like, we don't know each other, but like, I would you be open to talking to me? Do you encourage people to do that sort of thing? Yes, but now be a little careful. I know I get people from out of the blue, especially now that I'm an author, but I'd even get before where you say, hey, we haven't met. I'd love to chat with you for 30 minutes, for 60 minutes. And okay, I get you'd love to chat with me. You're going to see some value. Is that worth my time? I don't mean to be be arrogant, but if I respond to everyone who says, I'd love your time, all of a sudden I'm spending hours a day with other people and sucking away my time. You yeah. want to make sure this is valuable for both people. Just like any relationship, right. you certainly don't want a friendship where one person says, oh, you're my best friend. Another person says, yeah, you're a person I once in a while see. You want to be balanced. But in particular areas, certainly if you meet someone at an event and you seem to hit off, whether it's at the bar in the example we gave or at some professional event, say, hey, you know what? I'd love to chat with you more. You do some really interesting things. I'd love to learn more about you. And you give the person the option if they think, oh, yeah, you're interesting too. Let's get together. And it's okay to do that. I mean, think about what happens in our romantic life. And I I do a lot of analogies between dating and networking. Because if I was at a bar and I met a woman and was interested, like, oh, yeah, she was great. I chatted with her for five minutes. What am I going to do? Get her phone number. And then ask her out, and over a series of interactions, I'm going to get to know her better. Now, we call that dating. We don't have a term for it. And, oh, Bob, hey, yeah, really enjoyed talking to you. Let's get together. And, in fact, for some people, and particularly for, for men, that always feels awkward, the, the mandate. But if you make it clear, some business, I'd love to hear more about what you do, the work you do. See if there's ways I can help you. Going back to that question you raised, Bob, how can I be helpful to you? That's how you're building that relationship. We just don't call it dating. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because, uh, again, tying a couple of things together, we did the icebreaker at the beginning of this call. Those are very intentional questions 
because it's like, oh, you used to live in Chicago? I used to live in Chicago. What, what neighborhood were you got? And you're finding points of connection or connectivity. You know, oh, you went to MIT? Do you know Jared Schreiber? Jared's a friend of mine. He went to MIT. You know, and we're, we're looking for things that are in common, right? Oh, you've got nephews that are twins? We've got twins. Have you ever noticed, we, right? All these things are, you know, yes, I, I, I'm just generally interested, but part of what we're doing is just looking for things to find, you know, things that we have in common that start to establish a foundation of you know, why we continue to invest in this relationship. The other thing that's very cool about that, you know, because the way that I frame the question is, you know, anything that I might be able to do to help you mark personally or professionally. So a lot of times people, and I want you to talk about this, the, the whole, do I really have anything to offer somebody else? Right. And I know you've got a bit on that, but you know, if I'm asking somebody about their family and they say, well, you know, uh, we've got three kids, you know, two boys and a daughter, uh, our daughter's actually, um, has down syndrome and blah, blah, blah. Oh, now, Maybe I know somebody who, you know, maybe maybe we have a child that has that or a family member or I'm on the board of the developmental disabilities, you know, and like I can make a connection for somebody. So this is all like trying to relate to people as human beings and back to life and work, like get to know them as a person and not just as a work producing unit. And, and I think that networking just goes like fabulously better for people. Now, you brought up a, a good point. We opened this discussion with that uh, quote from Keith Ferrazzi about the currency is generosity, not yes. greed. One of the other things he said in his great book called Never Eat Alone, he said there's three things everyone focuses on or everyone has in common as a need, health, wealth, and children. Now, I refer to it as health, wealth, and family, but I certainly credit him for, for inspiring that. These are the three things that universally are true for everyone. Health. We all care about our health. We start conversations with how are you? Yeah. And certainly the last two years, health has been at the forefront. So you always know health matters to people. If someone is not healthy, whether it's they caught COVID or something more serious like cancer, mm. that's weighs heavily on their mind. Think about it. If you, someone said, I have cancer. What do you do? You react to say, oh, I'm so sorry. What can I do to help? Sure. So health is universal. Wealth. Our jobs, our careers, we generally all care about that. There are very few people who don't care about their career and or making money. So you can generally assume that's something important to someone. And third is family. Now, if you meet any parent or grandparent, very quickly, it's let me tell you about my children. Let me show you pictures. They want to talk about how proud they are of their kids. And so more generally, we care about people in our lives, whether it's our children, our spouse, our parents, our siblings. So we all have that. And these are three areas. If you know nothing else about the person, you know these are areas that matter to them. And that's a good place to start a conversation and you'll probably find some overlap there. Now, you can certainly find it elsewhere, as you point out, with questions like, where did you grow up, go to school, areas of interest. Okay. And if you look, you will find some. But those are three good areas where you're probably going to find But even what, what, what all that's predicated, when you just said that, if you look, right? I mean, there's a, there's a real intentionality about it. 
And, and I think a, an important point to make for anybody listening is this isn't trying to be manipulative, right? This is networking, relationship building has to be genuine. It has to be sincere. People will pick up almost immediately that if it's, you know, superficial, you know, you're not really asking out of a genuine interest to learn more about them. And when you demonstrate that authenticity, I mean, trust gets built really fast. I mean, these are the people that we like. You know, well, why do you like him? Because he's taking an interest in me. Uh, the, the other thing that I'd love to hear you talk about, there's, a, a, again, I think uh, a quote in the book that talks basically about don't keep score, but the more you give, the more you get. And then, you know, for me, I talk about sowing and reaping. It's a thing. Like if you, if you cast seed and take care of it and nurture it, the natural byproduct is it bears fruit. That's just the way things work. And that's not manipulative. That's just, that's the dynamic. But could you talk about the more you give or you get? I think of networking as karmic. It is not about keeping scores. It's not about saying, well, I did this for you and you owe me. Yes. Now, there's, there's probably a little on the extremes. If you come over and help me pack up my apartment, okay, that's a pretty big favor. I probably take you a dinner or do something. But really, I don't think about, well, I introduced you to two people and you've only introduced me to one, so you owe me. No, I just try to give. I try to help. Because generally, there is a low cost for most of what we do in networking, unless it's a really big favor connecting to someone really big or packing up that apartment. Most of what we do when people call me or I call them and say, hey, I, I just wrote to a friend last night. I said, my app is coming out next week. I'd love to get your advice. And he goes, yeah, sure. Just give me a call anytime. Yep. Because he and I have helped each other so many times over the years. We don't keep score. We just know when one of us has a need, we call the other person and we're there for each other. So have that mentality and go with the, how can I help you? What can I give? Now, most humans tend to have something. As, um, I forget the name of the theory, but it's, it's res or the principle of reciprocity. That mm -hmm. if I do something for you, you will probably feel some obligation. Now, I don't call you on it. I don't say, hey, remember when I did this, but you're going to feel that connection. You're going to at very least appreciate what I did and you'll be more likely to respond in the end. So I, I just give it out. I just help as much as I can. And know at some point it'll come back and maybe sometimes I'm asking for more than I've given with one person, but maybe I'm giving more than I'm getting with another it's going to balance out in the end. But if you yeah. sit there and keep score, first, that's just a lot of mental tax that I don't yes. know why you want to do that. But then also people will, will feel that and it won't feel as genuine. And people, as you know it, Bob, people really appreciate that genuine, that authenticity in the relationships. Yep. And so obviously Adam Grant is well known for give and take. And you know, I think that, that would be sort of the seminal, you know, empirical case, not just, you know, Hey, be a good egg for a good egg. I mean, he he basically, you know, data proves people who do this over the long term are much more successful and happier than people that are net takers or traders, you know, but but just are looking to give and good things tend to happen to people who give. Um, moving on, because uh, I want to be a little bit mindful of the time here. You know, the third topic that we were going to talk about is communication and, you know, Words mean different things 
to different people. And I know your chapter on that, you know, gets into, you know, idiom expressions and things like that. You know, one of the things that I would want to say just on that really quickly is picking the right channel for the right message. So if, if I was texting you about something and you asked me a question and I said, sure, well, you could read that and it could be sure, whatever, or sure, happy to help, you know, and or if you've got a difficult message to deliver, you know, this is the breaking up by text kind of thing. But, you know, like Slack isn't the way sometimes to be communicating. I mean, the phone's an amazing thing, right? You, you can actually talk to somebody. Zoom is an amazing thing. You can actually see their facial expressions while you're interacting with them. But but I was wondering if you could just sort of, you know, start with kind of some core principles around communication. And I know that you want to talk about that and then how we can develop those skills. Communication. Now, I have a chapter on communication, and this is probably one of the broadest topics, maybe along with leadership, because you could read a dozen different books on communication talking about a dozen different things, and they are all equally useful and good. When I looked at this topic and when we looked at it at MIT, really it comes down to some fundamental things, and that's why I focus on a chapter, something that's going to be universal and apply to everyone. So, yes, you can get better at communicating, being on stage or writing effective emails, and that's useful for many and not all. But what I look at is how to effectively communicate with others. And it's the fact that we all carry these mental models in our head. We all communicate a certain way, and yet not everyone communicates the same same way. So here's an example. Suppose that I go over to Paris to give a talk. Now, unfortunately, I don't speak French. So I'm going to have to do the talk in English. What happens? Everyone in the audience, well, presumably they speak English because they saw it would be in English. They sit there. English is not their native language. So as they hear my talk, they have to translate in their head from the English to the French, and then they process those ideas. But I'm putting a tax on them. I'm taking some of their mental energy to do that translation. I think of it like you have that CPU And if 10% of the CPU is used for a certain type of, let's say, video processing, your video runs slower. It's a little choppier. It's not as as good or the resolution's not as good. Uh, Might be 10%, might be 50%. Better would be if I say, well, I know I'm going to France. I am going to speak French because then 100% of their mental capacity will be on the message and not on that translation. Now, unfortunately... Um, I don't speak French and you can't learn French and Chinese and every other language out there. But we have different mental models when we communicate. I break this down in the book by recognizing different types of mental models. Mm -hmm. What I can do is instead of communicating in my mental models and asking you to pay that tax and do that translation into your mental models. If I can become multilingual, it's a lot easier than learning Chinese and French and Italian and every other language. I can communicate in your mental model and let you focus 100% on the message and not the translation. So it's very important to understand how other people are thinking and how to communicate within that style of thought. Well, so what's obviously integral to what you're talking about is being empathetic and, and putting yourself in the other person's position. I was in Norway recently and met uh, a lot of the people there speak flawless English. It's amazing and embarrassing at the same time. Um, But one of the folks that that I was meeting with was a family member uh, of some people that we were at, and his English was not 
like something he was very confident in. And it's not talk louder, but for me, I'm like, okay, this is going to be tougher for this gentleman. So I'm going to speak more slowly because that translation is happening. And I want to account for that. And then not showing the full breadth and depth of my vocabulary, right? It's like, keep it simple. Like he doesn't need to know every big word that I think that I know or whatever, but just trying to keep it fairly simple. And, and he, it was really nice for me because he complimented me afterwards. He's like, you are so easy for me to talk to compared to most Americans. And pronouncing all the words clearly, slowly, and kind of, but, but being very aware and cognizant of the, I like how you say that, the mental tax that he has to pay just to talk to me because I can't speak Norwegian to him. So I think it's a phenomenal point, but related and sort of to your mental models point, and I wanted to talk about this a little bit, in the you know, thankfully broadening you know, diversity, inclusion, equity world that we live in, is people are coming at this from different countries, different cultures, different life experiences, and trying to be, again, kind of sympathetic slash empathetic to where are they coming from? And how can I, one, make the message best received by them? And then at a minimum, kind of the Hippocratic Oath, at least do no harm. Like, but let me at least not, not do something that's a faux pas in that. So could you talk just a little bit about, you know, again, kind of how you might think about this in a DEI context? Sure. It's recognizing. Now, I, I use mental models. I don't focus as much on DEI in the book because that's not my area of expertise, but it's recognizing that we have different backgrounds and contexts. And this is one of the reasons DEI is important, because white males like us have a certain perspective that's very different than the perspective of, say, a lesbian African-American woman. She sees things, hears things, views things very differently than we do. And we know we are organizations and we as individuals are better off when we have that diversity of perspectives. Yes. But in fact, we want that diversity. So I talk about mental diversity. I talk about different backgrounds. For, for example, when I'm building my app, now I know lots of urban people. I live in New York City. I have lots of friends in San Francisco, in Boston. But I have to remember my app is not just for those people. It is for everyone. And it's important I get that diversity of thought. Now, some of them might be white males like me, but they are going to come from a small town. They're going to have a different type of background upbringing. And of course, many of them will not be white males. So I'm going to get different perspectives or even people. There's a very common mistake engineers make, which is we build things that seem really logical to us. It's like, oh, of course, and control F7. That's all you have to remember. And then the users say, what the heck? This makes no sense. And this is why we know engineers are terrible generally at interfaces because we think a certain way and we don't think about people who think other ways. So you want to get these other thoughts. How do other people think about an interface? And so you want to get these different perspectives from other backgrounds, other countries, even other fields of thought. And that's going to help you really see things from different perspectives and see opportunities and risks you might otherwise miss. Yeah. Now, because I know that, that you know, developing these skills is important and I'm, I'm trying to be cognizant of the time. You've got some downloads to help people develop some of these skills. Could you maybe share what that's about? 
So on the resources page at the careertoolkitbook.com slash resources, there are a number of free downloads. Now, some of them are the questions that you should ask as you're thinking about your career. Some of them are things like questions to ask during an interview process about company culture. This is a common issue people don't know how to do. And so whether you're on the hiring side or candidate side, there's some great questions you should definitely discuss. The very first download on that page is the Career Toolkit Development Program. Now, this is written for organizations, but you can use it individually. The idea is that we want to develop these skills, not just in ourselves, but in our whole organization. In fact, that's the best way to learn these skills. Because when it comes to leadership, communicating, networking, negotiating, that's not something we can do at home. I can learn calculus by reading a book, I don't learn networking by reading a book. I have to actually do it. I don't learn reading just by reading a book. I have to practice. And so through these peer learning groups, it will help you practice. It will help you learn because you'll have discussions with other people. Now, if you're at an organization, this is a completely free download. I don't charge anything. I don't even collect your email. You can just click download. You can download this and set this up in your organization or give it to your HR person and let them set it up. And you create these small groups where you get together and discuss some of these topics. You can use my book if you want. You can use a different book. You can use articles. You can use a great show like this one. Listen to an episode and discuss what you're learning. Mm -hmm. It's that discussion that really makes it valuable. If you are not an organization, you can still do this. Create your own group. Create a local meetup group. Create a group of just people you know and do the same thing. It just doesn't have to be within the confines of a company. So that's the first download on the resources page at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Super helpful. So again, this is like why I'm so glad to have you on because there's so many free tools. I mean, goodness, the book is only 20 or 25 bucks and that's worth the price of admission. Back to your original thing. If the CEO said, what's your budget? I need 25 bucks. Yeah, I can probably find $25. Um, Clearly, the book covers a lot more than time would allow for today. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd want to make sure that you leave our audience with, Mark? I'll leave you with just one thought. Now, I have a chapter on negotiating. And the way I open that chapter, is I say, imagine the following. You are 25 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000. Well, instead of accepting the job, you've learned to negotiate. Maybe it's my book. Maybe it's a different one. And you negotiate for $1,000 more. Not a big lift. So you get $61,000. If you do nothing else, if you stay in that job for the next 40 years until you retire, you just, with one five-minute negotiation, got $1,000 more for 40 years. In five minutes, you just got $40,000. Isn't that worth learning how to do this, investing the few hours to get a little better at negotiating, the few dollars to buy a book or take a course. Now, obviously, you're thinking, but wait a second, I'm not staying in that job for 40 years. And you're right, because you're going to have other jobs and promotions and raises. That's going to be a lot more than $1,000. Learning to negotiate can add tens of thousands, yes. even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your career. And now here's the bigger secret. We can do this with negotiations. You can do the math, say $1,000, 40 years, here we go. The same is true for leadership, for networking, for all these other skills. Now, no one says, oh, you're a better networker. Here's $1,000 more. But by being a better networker, you will get 
better job opportunities, better partnerships, better customers, suppliers. By being a better communicator, they're going to put you on the more important projects and the bigger roles. All of these skills getting just a little bit better will have this massive ROI on your career. So absolutely positively invest in these skills, whether it's my book or more episodes like this or other books, whatever you want to do, invest in these skills because it's going to have a massive impact on your success. There you go. So this has been phenomenal, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been sharing um, the careertoolkitbook.com is the main place to go. If people want to uh, connect with you on LinkedIn or reach out to you in any other way, are they welcome to? And if they did want to reach out, how would they do that? You certainly can. If you go to the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, obviously you can see where to buy the book, Amazon, elsewhere. There's a contact page if you want to get in touch with me. There's also the social media links to all my different channels, LinkedIn and elsewhere. And then also on the website, we have the app page, the resources page. I put out new content each week. There's a whole bunch of resources for you across the website. So go and take a look. Well, this is great, great content. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody who took the time to dial in today. If you'd like to maybe re uh, review some of the things that we've covered today, you can obviously download this on your favorite podcast platform, as well as just replay it on LinkedIn or YouTube. Uh, apologies for whatever glitch we had with the LinkedIn Live portion. I guess we'll figure that out when we're done. But uh, again, Mark, thank you so much. Great conversation. You know, I love this book. And there's just, we scratched the surface of this. And I would just highly recommend that people uh, invest the $25 for that. So thank you so much. Hope you have a great, great rest of your week. Thank you.